Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the middle of August 2021. We're a couple of days past the atmospheric river event that uh, hit Sitka on Friday morning. It rained pretty hard for about eight hours, recording about an inch and a half at the airport over that time period. It was enough rain to cause Indian River levels to spike up. They rose pretty quickly, topping out at just under 26 feet at the stream gauge, which is a little less than a foot below its record high level, and then dropped pretty much just as quickly uh, after the 11.30 in the morning peak. It was interesting to me. It wasn't really that much rain, only an inch and a half at the airport, but and over eight hours isn't an especially heavy rainfall either in terms of rate. Um, but for whatever reason, it seemed that it was enough to raise the levels of Indian River significantly. Makes me wonder if maybe the particular orientation of this was such that Indian River Valley got a little harder hit relative to some er- other areas in town. All these mysteries and uh, questions that come up around weather and topography around here, so always things to be curious about. If you're getting out and observing the south migrating birds or maybe into the mountains and seeing some of those late summer flowers that are still out and about, Love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Over the past couple of weeks, at least, it's become more apparent that we're seeing a lot of damage from something in the trees around Sitka, and I think it's also elsewhere in southeast Alaska. I had a few people ask me questions about it, and I thought it'd be an opportune time to visit with Elizabeth Graham, an entomologist with the U.S. Forest Service. I spoke to her previously a couple of years ago. We mostly focused on uh, spruce pests. But this time I wanted to ask her a little bit about the uh, outbreak that's happening here in southeast Alaska this year. So we'll go ahead and join the conversation with her talking a little bit about what it is that we know about this uh, current outbreak that's affecting the trees. I'm happy to share what's going on in the forest right now because uh, we're in the midst of a a major defoliator outbreak uh, by the Western black-headed budworm. And so uh, in 2018 and 2019, we had a hemlock sawfly outbreak. Uh, The hemlock sawfly feeds on the older needles of hemlock. And that, you know, was not too bad in the Sitka area, but it definitely affected uh, other parts of Southeast, one notable area is uh, western part of Admiralty Island. Uh, there's one section near Hood Bay that uh, we saw some really heavy defoliation to the point where uh, the trees have, have died in, in that spot. But um, that kind of has died out in uh, 2020. We didn't see much activity um, by the sawfly. We had a cool, wet summer. Um, everything kind of seemed pretty calm. Uh, insect-wise, but then in um, twenty uh, the summer in 2021, we saw the rise of this western black-headed budworm outbreak. And what's notable about the difference between the sawfly uh, and the budworm is that you know, the sawfly is fed on those older needles, the budworms uh, feed on the new needles. So they start off mining the buds, as the name indicates, and then they move on to the new growth. Um, and so having these two defoliator events back to back is a major thing here. So we're um, going to be monitoring that to see how extensive it is and um, how, well, well, how much longer it's going to last. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 the first thing when I saw this frass on the ground and I remembered those, those soft flies, I was like, oh, maybe it's soft flies again this year and we'll see some of those. And then, um, 
and then uh, yeah, I think I think somewhere I saw, or I guess I posted on iNaturalist, and then I think uh, the Forest Service, maybe it was you uh, through the Forest Service uh, Facebook page, posted something about these black-headed budworms. And as I looked at those, I was like, oh, I found those adults before. I've, I find them as adults flying, you know, coming to the light uh, where I'm looking at moths and and so forth. Or actually, last year when I was up high on the mountain, there was a bu- there was a bunch of them actually on a snowfield where they had presumably been blown up and landed and, and got cold and <laughs> couldn't fly anymore. Uh, and so I was like, Oh, these are, these are around. So it, it seems like there's probably a baseline population of these, but, but this is a kind of a, a special event where for whatever reason. And I mean, I guess, is there any sense of what it is that allows for or, or causes? I don't know which is the better, better way to, to phrase that these, these big outbreaks that happen. Yeah, well, these outbreaks are um, not something new. Uh, we have recorded outbreaks here in Southeast um, in the early 1900s and then uh, the 1940s, going into the 1950s, and then the most recent one uh, was in the mid-90s. Um, and so, they're, as you said, they are something that's um, always present in the forest, usually at lower levels. Um, yeah, they are not the best uh, navigators. Often they get blown up onto um, the snowfield and, uh, you know, that's one way to help control the population, right? <laughs> um, but they, um, the ones that do survive, you know, they, it, when we have warmer conditions, uh, warmer summers, they tend to produce or, um, I'm sorry, develop a little bit faster um, and have a better chance of making um uh, making it to adulthood, and then compared to uh, when we have wetter, cooler conditions, where that's more conducive to some of the natural controls that we have, such as uh, fungal and virus uh, diseases that help keep those populations in check. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, I remember hearing that. Um, I think for the sawflies, that that was one of the things that would control them as as well. Was these uh, natural uh, the 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 fungi or, or infections, basically, that they would get sick and, and die, as well as maybe some predation from birds. And I mean, imagine the birds will be, would be eating the, uh, the caterpillars and larvae of, of either species. But we don't have such a high density of birds here, uh, especially if it's sort of an irregular event that, that I would imagine um, you, you couldn't really depend on birds alone to, to control the, the numbers. No, and... Um... Yeah, like you said, this isn't something that they're used to having in such abundance um, when it happens every 30 years or so. Uh, but there are um, there are parasitic wasps that uh, target these um, caterpillars particularly. And then there's also other insect predators and small mammals um, as well that may uh, take advantage of feeding on, um, you know, this is a new food source. Um, but the the biggest control factors are going to be those diseases, um, both viral and fun, uh, fungal. And then also, ultimately, what will cause the outbreak to end is is starvation. If uh, it doesn't get taken uh, down by a disease, it'll eventually the caterpillars are going to run out of food, and it's just not going to sustain. Mm. So, how extensive are these? These outbreaks, I, you know, my understanding is, is that, I mean, certainly I'm seeing it around Sitka, some, some patches where it seems a lot more like most, I don't know about most, but many of the trees are affected in other places. It's like a few trees kind of mixed in, uh, like, like I say, the one, one patch that's along the road system here out towards Blue Lake here in Sitka, uh, there was quite a lot of hemlocks, but also a fair number of spruces that were, were showing, 
damage from from the same same bug. It sounds uh, same insect. It sounds like they're mostly prefer the hemlocks, but the but but they will go for the spruces as well. And and so like like do you have a sense of the patchiness and and how that works? Uh, well, we're getting the results back from our um, aerial forest health surveys um, that were just conducted uh, the last couple of weeks. And, and once we get the results from that, we'll have a, a, a better um, picture of where all the damage what is recorded. Um, but, you know, what we've seen, um, you know, like around here in Juneau, it sounds pretty similar where um, certain drainages, you know, it, it's pretty common. Um, hemlock is definitely the preferred host, but as you said, they can get into the Sika spruce as well. Um, it looks a little different on the Sika spruce. Uh, there's definitely more of a kind of whitish shade to the, uh, the needles being fed on at the tips versus the reddish color that the hemlock show. Um, but yeah, you can find them on, on both, uh, especially during heavy outbreaks like this. Um, and then places like uh, Petersburg and on uh, Metcalf Island, um, Admiralty Island, um, uh, here, like I said, here in Juneau. I mean, we've been getting reports uh, from, you know, most of the main communities, Prince of Wales, um, QU Island. There's, you know, it's just, it's been pretty extensive. And um, in the outbreak that happened back in the um, 1950s, they basically said that it affected nearly every forested acre of the Tongass. So that's just about all of Southeast. Not that it was all measured, you know, wall to wall or um, surveyed, but it sounds like it was, you know, pretty much everywhere. So it's, and I suppose it depends on the, the, the particulars. Is it, is it, is it, um, so I, I would imagine that the that the more extensive the outbreak, kind of the less often it occurs, and there might be just like a small, very small sort of like infestation, if you will, in a, in a single watershed or something that happens from from time to time, perhaps, or, or maybe it's just that the the particular conditions that need to align in terms of weather and and that sort happen, uh, you know, tend to happen at a broader scale, and so if it happens, it, it tends to happen more broadly. Yeah, uh, you know, as you said, there tends to be little um, population that builds up here or there. You know, it could be um, following one disturbance event where suddenly it's a little bit more exposed. And, uh, you know, now we have a buildup of budworm in the area that, you know, that's not too common here in Southeast because we don't have a lot of other disturbance events. Um, so, we, but we have, you know, s- s- there's always the caterpillars in the forest, you know, they're always there. And so when the conditions get right for the populations to build up, and, and when they're this widespread, that's, you know, usually going to be cl- uh, driven by climate. And so, um, you know, we had those uh, years of, you know, warm, dry conditions, and um, that's just perfect for helping to build up those populations. Hmm. Yeah, I guess it's the kind of makes me wonder, is it, I, I suppose if there's a couple of years, like, I don't know how long it takes for them to basically build up the population. Can they go from a whatever low lo- level baseline? Are they laying enough eggs that if, if there's just a massive survival rate that, that they can explode in one year or does it take a couple of years? Cause I, I guess my understanding at least of the, the budworms uh, that we're seeing this year is that they have a, a one year life cycle as opposed to they're not, they're not hatching multiple times a year, but I guess some insects can actually do that. Yes. Uh, but yeah, as you said, they um, only have one uh, life cycle a year. So the caterpillars that did all the damage this year, uh, those eggs were laid uh, 
last fall. So, um, you know, that means that population was building up last year. And and we saw a little bit of activity on the ground when we were um, doing some of our ground surveys. They were, you know, they were pretty limited, but we reached out to um, staff throughout the forest to say, you know, would you mind uh, whacking on some branches and, and looking for um, some caterpillars? But the problem is um, budworms uh, like to start up in the crowns of the trees. And we have really tall trees here. So um, it's it's hard to, to get a good sense of these. So uh, it, it almost seems like it, you know, blows up overnight. But, but really, uh, this, you know, was probably starting in the crowns last summer and even the summer before. Um, and then this year we had that really nice, um, you know, stretch of nice weather in, in June and July. And then, you know, it's like caterpillars had a great time feeding. They had no uh, disease or anything to keep their populations in check. And so um, now we're really seeing the damage from that. Yeah, it was interesting to me how, like I say, it was probably a month or two ago, I noticed the frass showing up just like little bits of, of green on the on the boardwalks and one of the local trails and uh, just little, little fragments. And then um, since then, I, you know, I've heard other people, and I so I imagine at the time the caterpillars were pretty small because the frass that I've seen since then, or more recently, has been much larger, <laughs> little little almost like the size, a small pellet kind of size, as opposed to these little kind of specks of green. And and that could actually be another caterpillar. So um, there's, <laughs> so yeah, that's that. There's also another species uh, that we have here. Um, that I have been getting occasional reports of, and um, it's a, a type of geometrid, which is an inchworm, a, a looper. And so um, they get a little bit bigger, and so they would have bigger frass than the budworm. And um, if we're if you're still seeing that, it's it's possible it could be um, that guy as well. You know, there's there's so many different um, defoliators that we have, and uh, you know from what we've seen so far has been mostly budworm, but we have been getting occasional reports of this other one. So um, it's interesting to see, you know, if they, there are several species that have taken advantage of these uh, nice conditions. Mm. And I guess, so, you know, you'd mentioned that a couple of years ago now, two, three years ago, there was the um, soft lie and people seem to remember that because I've had, I mean, I thought of it and, and some of the folks that have, have uh, I've talked to mentioned it, you know, without me mentioning it at first. So, so they sort of remember that as well. And I, so I, I guess I don't really remember the details, but uh, there must've been some, some publicity around, around that uh, in, in newspapers or, or whatever, but the, um, but there's a whole suite of, of, I guess, that are just here. Are they are they all capable of these sort of outbreaks or are there just some species that are more prone to outbreaking and others that tend to be pretty steady at low levels? Yeah. Uh, historically, um, the hemlock sawfly and western black-headed budworm have, are the biggest defoliators uh, that we've had here in southeast. And that outbreak of hemlock sawfly in 2018 and 2019, uh, we estimated that to be, you know, we, or we recorded damage on over uh, 580,000 acres um, throughout Southeast. And it, it was very widespread. And um, what we found in the ground survey said it was almost all uh, hemlock sawfly. We would occasionally find um, these loopers and maybe a little bit of budworm here and there, but it was uh, almost exclusively um, sawfly. 
And so that's a good thing that they, they, these outbreaks didn't all happen at once. So um, they were able to build up their populations a lot faster compared to the budworm. Um, and then the looper that I mentioned, um, there have been little, uh, there's been reports of a few population buildups where um, they're in larger numbers, um, but definitely not as common as the budworm. And so um, I'm, def I'm interested in, in seeing um, if you get more reports of, or see more frass falling there, because uh, we haven't been seeing that much here in Juneau, but um, you know, I really rely on the public and um, everyone else out there to be our eyes and, and report this stuff. And iNaturalist has been a huge help for us, uh, people putting their pictures on there. And you know, that's just like a great resource for us to look at and track some of these things. Oh, nice. So what's the species of the looper? It's called the Green Striped Forest Looper. I had to look at the name to make sure I said it right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> green Striped Forest Looper. Um, oh, Melanolophia imitata. Yes. <laughs> That's the, the, yeah, okay. That's one that I see every year. So I've been, for a few years now, I've been, uh, you know, mostly it's the adult moths. I I have a light, a porch light initially, and now I have a UV light that I have out with my porch light. And so each each evening before I go to bed and each morning when I get up, I go check the walls and see what's there. And and there's a couple other places that I've been over the years, uh, you know, somewhat regularly going and checking the walls where there's lights left on overnight and just seeing what's there. And one of the things that's been interesting to me is how much variation there is from year to year just in what I'm seeing. And I don't know how much that reflects actual population variation or if it's just like the randomness of of the weather and what's attracted or or much more patchy like like i happen to have a bunch that were in my yard or in the neighborhood this you know one year and and but that didn't really reflect overall population trends or anything like that but it has been you know as as many things in nature do raise, raising more questions than answers but yeah. <laughs> it's been interesting to just kind of observe that and see and i don't know what the full life history is for most of these um some of them, you know, uh, eat on on uh, herbaceous plants or alders, and some of them are conifer conifer ones. And so, with these with these ones, you you mentioned, so you you do the the flights, and I guess that just allows you to see that there's damage, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what causes the damage. Or are you sometimes able to determine that, or is that that requires the the separate ground, basically walking the ground and seeing what's there, sort of things. To, to actually identify the species that are responsible? Uh, well, so, yeah, it's a, that's a great question. Um, our flights definitely are to find where the damage is and record the extent of damage. And we're not going to find anything small scale while doing, you know, aerial surveys in, or anything like that. So, um, but there are some things we can identify from the air that are pretty distinct. Uh, for instance, the hemlock sawfly damage because that was in the inner crown um, and they tend to half eat the needles before the, they drop. Um, you know, it has more of a yellow shade to it. That's different than the budworm feeding, which is on the, the newer growth and has more of a reddish tint to it. And, um, and that looks different than say spruce beetle, you know, and so there's um, certain signatures that our aerial surveyors look for and that's how they record what the damage is. Um, but you can't, you know, know anything for certain without really going out and confirming. And, and so, um, you know, we knew that this budworm, uh, the budworm outbreak was brewing because we were getting reports from people 
um, noticing the frass and noticing their trees starting to change colors. And then we were also able to contact, uh, conduct ground surveys. And that's where we, you know, go out and um, measure the trees and we record how much defoliation is there. And then we whack on the branches and see what comes out. And um, as I was saying before, you know, we wouldn't see a lot of budworm, but it's also, you know, um, when they start up in the top of the, the trees, it's kind of hard to um, collect caterpillars that way. Um, and then, uh, so yeah, it's a little bit of a combination, you know, one method, um, the ground surveys, we can't tell how far and extensive it is unless we're able to get advantage of the hillside. Um, but you can't have the, you know, one without the other. They really um, are pretty important. And now we're starting to explore uh, using remote sensing options. And um, I won't try to go into the details, but um, our awesome aerial survey program manager, uh, Karen Hutton, she's uh, been kind of unlocking the, the code to, um, you know, recording damage using uh, satellite imagery and picking up that change. And, um, you know, it's a, ch- a big challenge in Southeast where we have a lot of cloud cover. So, right. uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot that they can do. I've 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 just seen like online some like there's a NASA Earth imagery of the day or something like that, and sometimes they have vegetation change things where it's like, I mean, not stuff that I know how to really read and interpret, but but that that over time they're able to develop essentially signatures and wavelength shifts and wavelengths or whatever that the satellites are recording, and especially because you can have you can compare one to the other, then you can see the changes. Uh, and then start to understand what those mean and allow you to see a lot more. Yeah, because there's a lot of country in Southeast, a lot of which is, is let's just say, difficult to access. Yes, yes, for <laughs> uh, sure. Especially when I imagine there's not a huge number of you out there looking, you know, as, as part of your work. Right. And even for flying our aerial survey, um, you know, some states, they fly 100% of their forested area. And here, you know, we can maybe do 20%. And, um, you know, that even that can be challenging with our uh, weather conditions and plane availability and, um, you know, just all of the, the logistics that are challenges in, in doing business in Alaska. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned that it's really helpful for folks to report stuff. And I guess if, if there's folks listening that are, are interested in doing that or just out out and about, you know, I guess from, from even just like many of us have, have trees in our yards uh, or if we regularly walk a trail or, or uh, where, where, you know, it's hard to get away from trees <laughs> around here. And so, you know, what sorts of things are useful to be looking for and, and what sorts of things are, are helpful for folks to, to report and, and ask questions about? Uh, that's a great question. And the first thing I always say is anything that's in abundance, if you if you see a bunch of things feeding on something, um, you know that's always a great one to post. Um, but really, anything that captures your curiosity. Uh, the great thing about that iNaturalist is there's so many people out there who know so much, and you know I might know things about forest pests, but I don't know how to identify every little fly and those things. Um, so, you know, it's great for posting just any cool things you find on there. And there's someone who can help ID that. And what the stuff that interests us automatically gets put into this Forest Health Observations Project. Um, so we're able to pull from that, you know, without the public having to know, is this a forest pest or not? Um, 
And so it's it's a really great resource just to kind of find out like, hey, what is this interesting thing that I'm looking at? Um, and, you know, how can I identify it? That'd be the first place to go. Um, but then as far as looking for um, damage in the forest, you know, I, we're pretty fortunate for living in a, a healthy forest. And, um, you know, we kind of have a good baseline for, for what looks uh, what looks right. And, and so, you know, seeing lush green trees with their foliage, um, you know, that's nice and full. That's what we're normally looking for. So when you start to see things that look out of place, you know, that's when you want to maybe stop and take a closer look. And, um, you know, sometimes the the reason might be pretty obvious. Uh, You know, somebody might have just put a road next to the tree or, um, you know, one common thing we find, you know, porcupine damage. They like to chew on the tops of some trees and cause top kill in places or um, things like that. You know, you might see see the obvious things like that pretty uh, quickly if you take a look. Um, but then you might start seeing the smaller things like the insect activity or uh, defoliators or bark beetles or um, other diseases that you might find on on trees as well. Hmm. Yeah. I, and my understanding. So, so you you specialize kind of in the insect pests, but but there's others that you work with that also look at at some of the other the other um, pathogens, uh, like fungal pathogens and so forth? Yeah, uh, my uh, counterpart here in Juno is Robin Mulvey, and she's a forest pathologist. So she specializes in the um, the diseases and in uh, that stuff of that nature. Um, so yeah, like I do the bugs and she does the crud. Um, and then we also have another pathologist who's based up in the interior and um, yeah, we have a pretty small team. Uh, there's three entomologists, two pathologists, and then uh, three uh, biological scientists that were all focused on forest health as well. Oh, and our aerial survey um, program manager. That's a, a lot of a lot of <laughs> not a lot of eyes for a lot of lot of square miles. Yes, uh, no, it is not, and uh, that's why, um, like I said, that we we really rely on uh, reports from the public and and it's really important information to, to receive. Do you, do you, I mean, we've been talking primarily about trees here, but do you also include other um, plants in the, in the, in the forest or, or smaller trees, deciduous trees and, and, you know, herbaceous plants? Uh, Well, deciduous trees, definitely. Um, We, you know, I think when we were talking last time, it might've been about green alder sawfly. Um, That's been a good year. Yeah, it's been a good year for green alder sawfly, at least here in Juneau and um, other places that I've been. They've been pretty abundant. And uh, and so, yeah, that's one that um, we see a lot of. Um, and then as far as understory stuff, you know, it's not something that um, I'd say is like my main focus, but there is always interest. Uh, and especially if there's interest from the public about, you know, something's uh feeding on their blueberry bushes, you know, people are going to want to know what's going on there. So um, it's, it's not my primary focus, but I definitely can't ignore them. Ah, yeah. Well, I have, there was one time I saw, uh, I think they ended up being soft flies of some sort. I don't know if I ever got a name on them. I posted them on a naturalist. It's been a while, but they were on some of the Sitka willows here, just like, but there was a bunch of them, like all kind of I won't say they were cooperatively feeding because I don't think they were cooperatively feeding, but synchronized feeding. Like they were all kind of together. <laughs> yeah, they'll feed in little aggregates. Yeah, there's one on there's one on alder called the striped alder sawfly, and um, 
yeah, somebody had just posted pictures in the Bugs and Plants of Alaska Facebook group about it. And they, they have this behavior where they feed on the, um, like in a, in a group on the alder leaf and they will snap their uh, ends at you if you disturb them. And so they, you know, they, and it's a big group of them. So, you know, you can imagine if you were a predator and uh, all of a sudden they all start snapping at you, you'd be, Oh, I don't want to eat that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Interesting uh, defense, defense mechanisms they have. Um, So with these, I mean, you mentioned that the, uh, sawfly actually ended up killing some trees uh, on Admiralty Island in particular. And it, my impression was from doing a little bit of reading on the, on the budworm is that, and, and actually the sawfly as well, is that usually if there's just one year of outbreak, then, then the trees can recover. But it's, it's, if it extends to a couple or three years that you start to see a lot more mortality. And, and I'm just kind of curious if that you know, what role that might play in sort of forest regeneration. And, and cause yeah, as you mentioned, we don't have a lot of disturbance here. We have kind of wind throw and landslides and, um, and beyond that it's, it's trees dying for, for of old age or, or fungal infections, which then ends up being wind throw at some point usually. Well, and, and we have this, we have these defoliator outbreaks. And so, um, as I mentioned earlier, they, these have happened on a 30, 40 year rotation. And, um, you know, we can see some of the impacts of that in the old forest, you know, where there might still be an old dead top, um, you know, from top kill and it, you know, will create some gaps and, um, you know, introduce more plants to the understory and additional light and, um, so yeah, it, it's, uh, w- one of our main disturbance agents here, you know, when it happens on these, um, large scale basis and, um, it's not something that happens, you know, every year, this, uh, majorly thankfully, but, um, you know, we'll see the impacts of it through, you know, how, how the forest responds. But, you know, what I try to reassure people with is we've seen recorded several of these outbreaks already over the last hundred years and um, the trees in this forest are a lot older than that. So, you know, they've withstood it before. Yeah. Well, and if folks have particular trees that they're interested in protecting or, or minimizing the chance of, of, of this being uh, fatal to the, to the trees in their yards, presumably um, is there, is there things that, that folks can do at kind of that scale of, of just like the individual tree or two that they, they might have an interest in, in keeping or? Sure. Um, yeah, for an individual tree, uh, you know, the first thing I would determine is um, if the population is going to, uh, you know, if, if, if you're in an area with a heavy population, is it worth treating? Um, you know, because if, if there isn't heavy pressure, then it's, you know, I, I wouldn't want people to waste um, money and resources on doing a treatment when, uh, you know, it's not going to be worth it. Um, most of these outbreaks, you know, end on their own. And so if you're in the midst of something though, where you've got a tree on your camp or whatever, and you're, you know, concerned about it, um, there are some pesticides that have been approved for, um, budworm, uh, application. And that, you know, would be something I would encourage them to talk to, um, extension office and, and see what options are out there. And, um, but it would definitely be something you'd want to just do on an individual basis and, uh, not really practical for, um, large scale. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I guess I'm just kind of imagining, yeah, the, the tree in the yard that that's been around a while and they'd like to keep, but, but then the size of the tree and I'm, I'm just like the, the logistics of applying that. Right. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, they are up in the crown. And so you'd want to be able to get up into the top of the tree if you were doing say a carbaryl spray and, and, you know, that's, um, that's a big undertaking to try to do something like that. And then we have them um, in large older trees. Some people try um, have tried using systemic insecticides where they get taken up by the roots and have to get up to the top. Um, but in our large older trees, that's a, a, a challenge, you know, to get the stuff all the way up there in the next growing season for it to get out to the needles to have an impact on um, the caterpillars. So it's definitely a challenge. Um, you know, one method would be if you see any uh, on your tree to mechanically remove them, you know, and clip them off and try to prevent them from reproducing. Um, and, you know, just hope our, your tree's resilient enough. And um, just a s- small things you can do is keep it well watered if we go through long spells of drought again, because that's, you know, one factor of stress you can um, maybe take away the, between the years of drought and defoliation. That's why I think some of these trees uh, are having a hard time recovering. Mm. Yeah, drought is always a funny thing here. You know, I was just I, I was talking with somebody who lives in Phoenix, and they're in a drought, and a drought to them means that they got less than an inch a half inch and a half of rain for the whole year. Yeah. <laughs> Where whereas a drought for us means well, we had less than an inch uh, and a half of rain, or or maybe four inches of rain for a whole month. Right. Um, and uh, but that that does remind me a few years ago. I don't remember which year it was, but I noticed. And I wondered if it might be due to drought or something, but many of the hemlocks that I was seeing around town here, it was, it was mostly the inner needles that were just all turning yellow uh, and then, and then dropping off, not, not the, the newer stuff. And I hadn't, I hadn't noticed that before. I mean, like it's, they, they shed needles every year, I'm sure. Um, But, but in this particular case, I don't, I don't remember seeing before or since really that, that there was so much yellowing of the needles. And I wondered if that is a response to drought or, or, or like how it is that the trees, I mean, I know this is starting to get a little outside your, your, your insect uh, specialty, but, um, but then you mentioned that the sawflies make it turn yellow as well. So it's, possible that something like that was going on as as well but i was kind of curious about it yeah no i i think it's a great observation um the sawflies do chewing on the needles but if you're seeing intact needles that are turning yellow um sometimes that is a response by trees uh you know those those older needles are like the least uh they're doing the least amount of resource acquiring for the tree right so so they're the least valuable. And uh, if they're stressed, they're going to you know, kind of get rid of those first. Um, whereas the new growth, that's, uh, you know, the, the most valuable to the, to the tree. They, so um, that, that could very well be a, a drought response. Hmm. Yeah, I suppose. So I, I am interested in, in just sort of like in, in years where it seems like most years we don't have this sort of an outbreak. Like what, what's this kind of the, 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 standard standard things that you're doing it sounds like you run surveys each year and are just kind of monitoring the baselines of um of these uh forest forest insects that that can can outbreak or or cause damage uh i I imagine are you also looking for species that that haven't been seen before and I, i mean could be moving in due to you know weather and climate or or introductions from from elsewhere 
Yeah, so we do, um, yeah, the last few years have been very busy for me as an entomologist. Uh, My first few years, we did not have nearly as much exciting stuff going on. Um, But uh, normally, when we don't have these big outbreaks, we still fly our aerial surveys, um, you know, because we don't know what we don't know without doing our surveys. Um, We also do monitoring for invasive species. Uh, We have um, what are called early detection rapid response traps. Um, and the idea is that we put these in high risk areas where, um, you know, like near Fred Meyer um, or near the ferry terminal where a lot of commerce is coming in. Um, and the and we put them in forested areas near there with the idea being that if an invasive species was brought in on something, um, that it would uh, impact that forest first. And that's where we would find it. And then we'd have the best chance at controlling it. Um, so, you know, that is, uh, you know, one of the standards that we do every year, um, looking for different invasive species or invasive moths, um, and then responding to uh, observations from the public and concerns if there's, um, you know, suddenly their alder leaves are, uh, you know, turning brown and what's going on there. Um, we will look into that and then um, working with the, the people on the forest, identifying, you know, different insect and disease damage. Um, we also work uh, with people on invasive plant work. Um, I think I forgot to mention her as part of our team, but one, one more member we have. <laughs> so, yeah, it's um, there's always something to keep us busy, but uh, this year has definitely been extra busy. Yeah. Well, it is. Have you have you had any? I, it, uh, insects that, that come in. I guess. I guess I'm not aware. But the I guess the main one that's sort of well established at this point is the is the spruce aphid. But the um, ha- have you in recent years had uh, new species that that were introductions and and maybe showed up once and and then and didn't didn't become established or or is it mostly been pretty clean in terms of not not seeing any of that. Well, there's a, a couple uh, that come to mind. Um, one um, is uh, an interesting story, and that's uh, the Western Tent Caterpillar. Um, that was actually introduced in Anchorage several years ago um, in, on nursery stock. And they kind of, I think it was actually in the 90s, and they um, pretty aggressively uh, eradicated it. Um, and so just recently it was found in Ketchikan. Um, and then a couple other reports, uh, Hyder and um, Annette Island, um, where the Metlakatla is, um, they were posted on iNaturalist. Um, and that's an interesting one because its native range um, is, is pretty close to southeast Alaska. It goes up to um, northern British Columbia. So, you know, we're kind of right on the edge there. And um, it, it begs the question, was this uh, a natural migration? It, it, it you know, made its way north um, due to changing climates and conditions. Um, or did it hitch a ride on someone's vehicle? Because the tent caterpillars are, you know, they, they tend to be pretty prolific and they're pretty easy hitchhikers. Um, so we still don't know the question, the answer to that. Uh, it's interesting because I went and surveyed Ketchikan for it this year. And it's really just one section of um, the it's the Mountain Point uh, area. That little bike path that's along there is that just like sort of a quarter mile section is the only place we found them. Oh, and they're there again this year. They were again there again this year, and I, I talked to uh, a gentleman on the the trail, and he said that he's seen them for at least the last three years. So 
Um, you know, we know now it's been there for a little while. It should, you know, should we do something to get rid of them? Well, if they're naturally moving north, you know, that might be a little bit difficult. So, um, you know, it's, uh, we're not quite sure what the answer to that is. Um, the other, the other insect that we've recently encountered, um, that's an invasive is, uh, Another interesting story, um, it's the uh, balsam woolly adelgid. And um, that was found uh, here in Juneau on a bunch of subalpine fur that were planted in um, the uh, Diamond Park um, swimming pool library, the facility that's um, in the Juneau Valley. Um, And so those trees have been planted, uh, I'm probably forgetting my details, but about, you know, 15 years ago or so. And um, I was able to contact the um, person who had planted the trees. And he had told me that they came from a nursery um, down in Oregon where they actually harvested them um, as wild seedlings. And so the, the subalpine firs were, you know, uprooted as wild seedlings in an area where this um, balsamolia delgid is known to be established. And then they were brought up here and planted. Um, so we don't know for sure that that's how the Boston Willie Delja got here, but there's a chance that, that that's how they did. And, um, fortunately we don't have fur, um, right here in Juneau, uh, at least in our forests. Um, it's planted pretty commonly as a, uh, street tree. Um, that, you know, there's, I think we counted about 80 fur planted around town. Um, but half of those were in the city park and, um, we worked with the city and borough Juno and they were awesome. The parks and rec staff, they, um, cut down all the trees where, you know, they were infested or potentially infested and, um, burned them to prevent any, um, of the indulgent spreading. And, um, yeah, now we're hopefully able to kind of try to keep it contained. Um, but it's, it's a tough one because there's still, you know, trees on private property that, um, could potentially be infested. And, um, it's an easy, um, insect to spread because they're, they're all female. And so you just really need one to get established somewhere. Um, and, and our subalpine fir forest isn't too far away. Right. So that's one that, that there, there could be some, most of the trees in the forest are not suitable hosts, but, but there are, yeah, the subalpine fir is not, not so widespread in Southeast Alaska, but there are places where it, where it grows that could be vulnerable to this. Yeah. Up by Skagway, we have um, some subalpine fir up there and then down in uh, the Ketchikan area, there's some Pacific silver fir actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You know, the, those Western tent caterpillars were, uh, I, I remember seeing some of those observations come in, I don't remember if it was two years ago or three years ago coming into iNaturalist. And uh, I'll just say that, that they weren't subtle. Um, <laughs> the Those things, it seems like if, if they're around where people could see them, they would get seen. Exactly. And that's how we found them was because people were posting them on iNaturalist and Facebook and, you know, that's, yeah. And and those, you know, I, I'm more familiar with the birds and so forth. And it's interesting, the the species that are somewhat marginal. So like there's pied-billed grebes or, or cedar waxwings and, and where they'll show up and they'll nest and maybe even like the pied-billed grebes nested on Swan Lake. I don't know if it was the same pair or not, but they nested there two summers in a row. And it's like, well, maybe this is a new normal, uh, but then they haven't been there since. And it's been several years since they were, since they were there. 
uh, and cedar wax wings are kind of some years there's a lot of that. Well, this year there's quite a, quite a lot of them. Somebody was just asking me is, uh, you know, are there getting to be more in Southeast Alaska? And I, I, I'm like, I don't know. There's, there's quite a few this year, but, uh, you know, based on past experience, it's like, uh, it feels like I got to give it a few years to see, or is this a new normal or is this, uh, this just happened to be that there's a good population that, that came here and, and some, some, something about, cause like in, I suppose on the average year, many things could survive here, but, but one of the years, you know, one year out of 10, they wouldn't, but that's enough to keep them from being established kind of in the long term. And I suppose with insects, it wouldn't, I mean, they're mobile as well. And so there's no reason to think that it might not be any different. Like you have things that are at the margins that'll be there for a little while. And then, you know, that hard year or whatever will knock them back and, and they'll not be around for a while. Um, so it's, yeah, it's hard to just know how much is within the natural variability and how much of it is, is sort of about trends and, and things that are changing. Yeah. And, you know, with insects, they're, they're really, really good at adapting. And, and so that's, you know, we just have to sort of see how they respond to these different conditions. And that's, you know, the, these long-term uh, monitoring is really one of our keys to, to be able to answer some of those questions. Do you, as part of your monitoring, you know, I, you mentioned the, the monitoring you do for invasive species and the, and the sort of the regular flight things. Do you have um, sort of uh, any, any kind of moderate monitoring, regular monitoring protocol that is just um, really more about like what's baseline abundance and what's here sort of normally and what, what are baseline sort of abundances or, or really, I mean, even that's kind of probably a misnomer because as as i've kind of paid more attention over the years i realized that that it's like normal weather it's that the, the never the weather is never normal it's always like above or below and then on average we have our normal uh so i imagine it's similar for populations of insects you know especially with insects where they can kind of boom and bust so quickly given their reproductive strategies well so that's um there's some things that we can you know like, like spruce beetle, I can put a trap out for and see how many spruce beetles fly into it. That's sort of an easy um, monitoring one. Um, of course, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean I can predict when a spruce beetle outbreak is going to be. I can just tell you that there's more or less beetles in my trap. Um, but not all things, you know, we, we can't monitor for everything by trapping. Um, that would make things a lot easier. Um, but uh, what we've been doing more and more lately with our team is um, setting up these uh, exploratory surveys and, on the ground. And, and so we have some um, longer term studies with, you know, more like permanent plots set up and looking at certain things. But um, what we've been trying to do more of is just general observation surveys. And um, we do this uh we use an app called Survey One Two Three, and and it's you know generates all this um, these fields, so we can kind of do it with our tablets and our cell phones. So often I'll enter things when I'm just um, you know out and about on a hike if I see something cool. Um, but uh, what we've been trying to do more and more of is setting up uh, you know, these twenty minute we call them twenty minute time meander, where we'll say okay, we're going to just spend twenty minutes and we're going to record everything we we can find you know damage wise or insect wise, disease wise. Um, and enter all that into the survey. And so that's, you know, given us a lot more baseline information. Um, but it is that that stuff is, is so valuable. And, um, you know, often we get so busy with what's active right now or what's the, 
you know, the big thing that's happening that we kind of forget to be doing some of this baseline stuff. And, and you know, sometimes it's not as fun either, especially when there's stuff yeah. going on. <laughs> I'll admit it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, one of the questions I've realized, you know, I think, I think a long time ago, I would have thought was an easy question, but I've realized it's, it's more difficult than I, than I would have probably initially thought is the question of how long has this been here? Uh, and am I seeing this for the first time because I wasn't paying attention or because it wasn't here? And, um, and there have been some, some cases where, where, uh, I would have thought that it was because it hadn't been here. In fact, I did think that, but then in the case of birds, but, but some other folks had been paying attention to birds a lot longer than I had. And so, and so then I got to find out that no, in fact, you know, and, and that's one of the things about living where I grew up. Uh, so I was here as a child and, and through my, through high school and everything. So like I had the opportunity to observe things, but I, I didn't, uh, even though it, we have this, and I suspect I'm not alone in this sort of feeling like, well, I know it's around. Of course I know it's around. Like, um, but, but the reality is even, even having now paid closer attention for 20 years is no end of things that I didn't know were always here. <laughs> and, and I slowly sort of come to discover them. But uh, I, I imagine that's one of the, you know, both from, is this, is this an invasive, you know, introduced and potentially invasive species, or is it something that's, that's often here or always here at low levels and occasionally here in, in much, much greater abundance. And so it's suddenly showing up on people's radars that, that they hadn't seen before or, you know, what's going on with these things. And, and I suppose the approach to trying to deal with them or, or, or mitigate them in, in the case of introduced species, um, like that feels like it's maybe an important question. Yeah, for sure. You know, one that comes to mind that I always get asked about it are uh, woolly bears. And, you know, I, oh, we've never seen so many woolly bears and, and, you know, versus, you know, we used to always see woolly bears. And, and so, um, the woolly bear is the spotted tussock moth. And, um, I actually, ironically enough, have not seen a single one this summer as I'm saying that I'm realizing, but, um, for the last, you know, five years, they've been, you know, very abundant. And, um, you know, usually I get a lot of people commenting and asking about them. And I've heard people that, you know, have lived here all their lives say, you know, oh yeah, we used to always see them and versus, oh no, I never used to see them, you know, and, um, so yeah, I've never been able to get to the root of, you know, how long they've actually been here, but they seem pretty well established now. Yeah, that's another interesting one. Cause I remember the first time I became aware of them even was when I started doing stuff on iNaturalist and there'd been some posted from Petersburg and I was like, I've never seen those. And they're obvious enough. Again, you'd think that, you, you know, you see these big fuzzy yellow and black caterpillars crawling around with these white, white hairs and like they're pretty distinctive. I, I would have thought that I would have seen them if they were around and that, yeah, I haven't seen any this year either, but I mostly see them like, I, I, I still could see them like the, it seems like they, they're later. Yeah. Yeah. Later in there when, when they're the largest, like I'm not looking for them when they actually show up in ways that I not even looking for them. It's, it's when they start doing the woolly bear March, you know, when they start doing the wandering and they wander across the trails and the street and, yeah, that's when people usually start noticing the woolly bears. But it seems like by this time of year, I'd at least be noticing the caterpillars. And and so far, what I've mostly been seeing are um, the green alder sawflies. So oh, okay, 
Yeah, the I saw a few adults earlier in the year. It came to my light of the of the spotted tusk moths, um, but I haven't seen any any caterpillars yet here either. And I hadn't seen them, but yeah, like you were saying, uh, they they were pretty common the last few years after like never seeing them. And so it's interesting, you know, that's one of the things that I I've started to take with a grain of salt when people say, well, we never used to have these, or we always used to have these. And I'm like, well, okay, but, but that could just really be a, a, a five-year period that, that really sticks out in a person's mind, you know? Well, and then going back to the budworm outbreak, the last one was, you know, 95 or 93 or whatever. And so we're, how many years out from that? And so, you know, they may say, I've never seen anything like this, but how well do you remember 30 years ago? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was, I was around in the summers th- those years, but yeah, no, I don't remember. I don't remember that uh, or anything, anything happening that way. And, and that can be one of the things about like, if you're at a, like the forest service having records or people that have been around a lot while and, and who were systematically paying attention. Cause like, that's one thing that I've noticed is, is there's a big difference between the things that we happen to notice um, just as part of our day-to-day lives and, and people who make an effort to systematically pay attention. And, and that's not just professionals that do that. There are, there are plenty of folks that kind of make systematic observations of things over time. Uh, but if we're just relying on sort of our impressions of things, like it, it could be that we were just really busy in a couple of years. And so we never saw things that were there, you know, and, uh, there's a couple, there's a, a species of moth. The Rumeptera is the genus. They're kind of the spear moss, black and white spear moss, I think the common name. And they were here for like a couple of summers. And they're, the thing about them is they're day flyers. So, so I was seeing them flying around during the day and I was like, I don't remember seeing those. And then, but then I haven't seen them again since, uh, there was, they were there these, these couple of summers and I don't know what was going on with them. I just saw one the other day, but not that many, not too many. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where it's like, maybe it's the weather, maybe they're moving in from somewhere else. Um, you know, maybe there's a, an outbreak somewhere else. And, and so we're just getting, getting some of them that are, that are coming over here because the winds are right. I don't know. <laughs> All these sort of mysteries. Yeah. I, I equated my uh, profession to meteorology as far as my predicting abilities. So <laughs> I'm about as good as the weatherman these days. It, it was especially, yeah, and, and the, the sort of seasonal things, I guess, because, yeah, yeah, I suppose you could be set up for a big outbreak, but of, of you know, an insect, but if, uh, you know, if a fungus or, or virus kind of moves through that, then they could just nip it in the bud pretty quickly. Um, and they, uh, and then you wouldn't, wouldn't see it. So, yeah, I guess that's part of, part of the fun of, about, you know, paying attention and, and being involved in, and uh, trying to figure out what's going on is there's there's the no end of questions and and not only that but no end of surprises uh, the things that they're like oh <laughs> I don't think I've ever noticed that before and then and then the questions that that brings up the insects always keep it interesting that's for sure <laughs> so it's and, and as as you mentioned earlier on you know there's a lot more eyes out there available if if folks out in the public are just kind of paying attention and, and being curious and so. Um, so the best way to, so generally speaking, just as a, as a matter of course, uh, you, 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 uh, encouraging folks to use iNaturalist and just post the things on iNaturalist and, and that you, uh, you and others uh, doing the work that you're doing have set up, um, a project in Alaska for forest. Um, I can't remember what all's on it. If it's only insects or it's, it's, it's more general than that, but, um, 
but but for things of, of particular interest to you that that you all will will then look look through and and kind of that helps helps you in the work you're doing yeah we we mostly have been tracking insects through there um occasional conks and stuff will show up as well um but yeah it's been um pretty new for us uh last year we started this um since we weren't able to get out and survey as much as we normally do we just thought let's you know try to get some observations from other resources and um so that's one way uh just to you know quickly get uh something up there you might it, it might not be me who identifies it um because there's a lot of people on iNaturalist who are really fast and i am not that good at responding that quickly um but we then put all that information into our annual forest health conditions report uh, but then people could also reach out to me directly if they have any questions or concerns or something um going on that you know maybe they're not quite sure what it is. Um, you know, we're always uh, open to, to hear what's happening and, and try to help, you know, identify the cause. Uh, yeah, that sounds great. And and you're at the, the Forest Service. Is it a particular, uh, I mean, Forest Service in Juneau. Um, is there a particular website or something that, that folks, and, and I'll put a link on when I post the post this on my website as well, but is there a particular um, place they should look for? Yeah, we have, um, there is a uh, Forest Health, um, it, so Forest Health Protection is the uh, division of Forest Service I'm under, but we have a Forest Health website, which I can share with you. And that's a great resource. It's got old reports, um, current reports. It's got uh, websites on different individual pests, uh, diseases, and uh, invasive plants, all that information, um, as well as all of our contact stuff. Um, the other thing uh, on social media, we um, use the hashtag uh, um, Alaska Forest Health. And so um, if you follow that, um, you can see up to date posts that we put out there um, or follow the Alaska region um, on Facebook and Twitter is another another good way to get updates from us. OK, nice. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time and and uh, and sharing here. I'm sure a lot of folks will be interested in in hearing more about the the budworms that that we're seeing now. But I also hope, hopefully folks will will take this as some inspiration to yeah pay attention and and just share what they're observing out there and help help this help our our collective understanding you know improve of of kind of the the baseline and and baseline variability both of of what's out there and and what it's doing. So great. Yeah. Yeah. The more eyes, the better. And I appreciate the time. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded this past week with Elizabeth Graham. She is an entomologist working out of the Juneau Southeast field office of forest health protection. And I want to thank her for taking some time to visit with me this week. And thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.